Today's show is brought to you by Aptiv. Aptiv is a fabulous app and robust online community that allows you access to top-notch, motivating personal trainers who guide you through an audio-based workout that is timed to your choosing with fun, perfectly synchronized music. Like Netflix for fitness, Aptiv gives members unlimited access to their entire bank of high-end trainer-led workout classes. So if you're looking for fresh, high-quality, on-the-go motivating workouts that adapt to your lifestyle, I highly recommend Aptiv. In fact, if you head over to the curator playlists, you'll see a familiar face. I chose seven of my favorite Aptiv workouts so that you can get a well-rounded mix of workouts that will take you from intense cardio to restorative serenity. And these are some of my favorite workouts to do when I'm traveling or if I just have a spare 20 minutes between activities. And because they're the best, Aptiv is even offering Fed and Fit listeners a free 30-day trial when you sign up for monthly subscriptions at www.aaptiv.com. Be sure to enter the promo code FEDANDFIT, one word, at checkout in your first 30 days or on the house. Welcome back to another episode of the Fed and Fit Podcast. I'm really excited about today bringing you a very special reverse interview. And if you're brand new to the Fed and Fit Podcast, and maybe this is your first episode you've ever listened to, you might be wondering, what the heck is a reverse interview? <laughs> it's a good question. So reverse interviews, and forgive me, uh, longtime listeners, because you've heard this a few times, the reverse interviews are when Fed and Fit listeners and readers write in with really good questions. And instead of keeping our dialogue in an email and responding back and forth to each other, I invite these very gracious uh, readers and listeners to come on my podcast so that they can ask me their questions, essentially interview me uh, for about 30 minutes, ask me whatever they like. We have a nice discussion with the hopes that some of this dialogue can really help others out there that may be uh, you know, puzzling or wondering some similar, uh, working around some similar concepts. So today I'm very excited to invite Fed and Fit listener Elaine on the show today. She lives in Dallas, Texas, so she's a fellow Texas girl with two teenage daughters up there in Dallas, and she works full-time in finance. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Elaine. Well, thank you. I'm so excited uh, to get a chance to uh, ask my question. Because uh, I've had a, a lot, I've learned a lot listening to your podcast uh, over the last uh, few years. But um, so a little bit more about me. I went gluten-free about eight years ago and I've been paleo for a little over two. And, um, and we, I did, did that because of health issues. I have Crohn's disease and some other autoimmune type stuff and really have found um, tremendous help through what we eat. So at our house, we totally believe in the power of food to heal and how important it is for our health. And um, so even with that, uh, you know, we may not always make the best choices, but we try. And now my husband is, uh, has recently been diagnosed as diabetic. And so we're trying to modify the plate some to fit his needs as well. And, and when I do the cooking, it's pretty much, um, we eat most of our dinners at home and the, everybody kind of eats the same, same stuff. But what, um, 
the question is when composing these plates, I've got the carbs kind of taken care of, but the diabetic nurse kept telling us that he needs to eat low fat meats. It needs to be chicken breast and fish instead of a variety of meats. Um, and the low fat meats would help with the regulation of his blood sugar, that the something about the uh, higher fats and some of the other animal proteins would keep his um, blood sugar from being able to, to regulate correctly. And so I didn't know if that was just a product of the time when this nurse was getting her original information about nutrition, or if there's some real science behind what animal protein fats do to blood sugar. It's a really, really good question. Man, when you, when you wrote me in, I was like, yes, I really hope she agrees to come on the podcast because I want to talk about this. <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, it sounds like your husband is in excellent hands with you uh, in the kitchen. I know that you, you wrote in the email as well that you, um, you share meals together. So Yes. Right, and you're the primary cook at home? I'm the primary cook at home. I do the grocery shopping and, and they're fine eating what I put on the table in front of them. Um, you know, cause I, I do a lot of variety, you know, so there's, you know, we run the gamut of meats and, and vegetables that they, they're not all excited about the different types of vegetables they see. So there's always something that they do like with the, maybe the new vegetable or the one that they're not so excited about. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and we'll put a, a starchy, carb on the plate, you know, a lot of potatoes, but, um, you know, now the proportions are a lot more realistic, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, in trying to manage the diabetes. But, um, but there's a lot that you can do with di different animal proteins to keep the mealtime interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. Nothing gets more boring than grilled chicken breast and broccoli day after day. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and then nothing makes you feel like you're on a diet like grilled chicken breast and broccoli, at least speaking from personal experience. Well, that's true. And then it also is helpful on the budget to be able to break free from chicken breast and fish. Mm -hmm. It is. Absolutely. Well, this is a wonderful question. And what I'm going to try to do is give you an answer that I hope is helpful without knowing too much of the details, right? Because when it comes to nutrition science, best, the best way to go is to work with a consultant one-on-one -on -one that you trust that kind of comes from that holistic perspective, right? And all that really means right. today, when you're talking about a holistic nutritionist, it means somebody who is mostly caught up with the newest literature, right? Okay. So, Somebody who's coming from this, I hate to use this word, it's just I can't, other words are escaping me at the moment, but somebody whose education is coming from maybe an established system that's 10 to 15 years old is going to be pulling from a literature base that is currently outdated, right? Okay, and, yes. And, and so when I, just, just to clarify, when I say holistic nutrition, I'm not saying go find somebody who's going to tell us to eat chia seeds three days, you know, three meals a day, uh, but somebody who has... A, a good grip and a really good handle on the current literature as it pertains to health and wellness um, and avenues to heal through food, which is something that it sounds like you already have a really good grasp of. So 
I say that because there's a lot of different variables, right? And without knowing your husband's blood work and without working with you in a one-on-one -on -one capacity, um, there's some more very detailed information that I could probably give you and you can get. And listeners hearing this know that if you're looking for very detailed, specific answers, I recommend going and finding either an NTA, nutritional therapy practice, uh, gosh, what are they? Nutritional therapy um, associate, a nutritional therapy consultant, a okay. practitioner, or an NC, nutrition consultant. And the two programs that they come out of are going to be the NTA program, um, which is about, gosh, what is it? About a one and a half to two year program that focuses on holistic nutrition, specializes in Weston A. Price um, foundations. And then the NCs, nutrition consultants, which is what I am, come out of Bowman College. Now you can also work with registered dietitians who like Sustainable Dish, Diana Rogers, for example, is an RD. She had to go through sort of that established general consensus in modern healthcare of what is and is not nutritious, right? Okay. So those are kind of the AHA, American Heart Association guidelines, which for the most part we all understand to be slightly outdated and slightly also overrun maybe with politics. Right. Um, so, you know, find somebody who maybe went through one of those programs but has also stayed true to what they consider to be relevant in recent literature. So someone like Diana Rogers is a good example of that. People like that. I think working with somebody one-on-one -on -one is when you're going to get the best, most specific, most relevant information. Now, that being said, I, I definitely want to talk about this um, on kind of a bird's eye view because I think there's a lot that we can discuss as regard, with regard to a recent diagnosis in diabetes and what does that really mean in terms of the macronutrients that are showing up on our plates. Okay. Um, so anyways, all of that was just a big old disclaimer. <laughs> <laughs> um, so gosh, you know, this is such a good question and it's something that I encounter over and over again. Even I'm thinking about my own mom and dad and thank goodness they've given me permission to talk about them. But in my, my mom and dad will come home from the doctor's office and will essentially spout off, well, the doctor today told me to toss out the Kerrygold Irish grass-fed milk butter and instead replace it with this other kind of margarine. And, and it's just, it blows my mind because that doctor is, for whatever reason is kind of subscribing to old, old information, you know, right. without really paying attention to what's new and what's relevant. So it's definitely out there. You're definitely not alone. So when it comes to somebody with a recent diagnosis of diabetes, when we look at the, when we look at the body from a, from a very holistic perspective, right? When we think about diabetes uh, for folks who maybe are listening and don't really have a really good idea, what's happening is we're having a hard time metabolizing sugars in the body. And Elaine obviously knows this really well. She's already talked about how she feels like she's got the carbohydrate count under control in terms of the meals. Forgive me if I got that wrong, Elaine. No, that's right. Okay. Um, so for everybody else listening who may be wondering a little bit, that would that's probably the first macronutrient that comes to mind are sugars, carbohydrates, right? Because, and there's three macronutrients before I jump too far ahead. The three macronutrients are proteins, carbohydrates, and fats. And somebody who's diabetic really has to take a look at making sure we're not getting too many very quick burning carbs on our plate because what it does is it spikes our blood sugar and because our body has a hard time metabolizing that blood sugar, 
really high blood sugar amounts for a period of time can do damage, right? And, and this all has to do with insulin. We can do a whole nother episode probably on diabetes 101 one day, but that, that's just kind of the very rough explanation of what's going on. So the first macronutrient to come under fire when it comes to a diabetic plate is going to be carbohydrates, rightfully so right? Because yes. let's say if somebody is coming from, let's just say hypothetically, I'm assuming your husband was not since you've been the primary cook in paleo for so long. Uh, but let's say somebody is coming from a standard American diet. And in a standard American diet means that they're probably eating Chick-fil-A for breakfast, uh, maybe some sort of a burger for lunch, and maybe some sort of pasta for dinner, right? right. I've, I've been there. And so if they're coming from a standard American diet, some days it sounds delicious. <laughs> Um, so if they're coming from that and they have a recent diagnosis of diabetes, the things that they have to sit down and assess are those really, really refined carbohydrates that are showing up on their plates, the buns, right? And the burger, the, the breading on the fried chicken in the morning, the, the sugar and the sweet tea, the sugar and the sodas, things like that they want to take a look at. And so that's the first thing to go. Now, the next thing and what Elaine's talking about, gosh, I spent what, 15 minutes just getting up to your question. <laughs> Um, what Elaine's talking about now is what about the fats on the plate? And without, again, without looking at your husband's blood work and without knowing, knowing what I know of the story, I would say that for the most part, there's a really good chance that the advice you are given is kind of old school, low fat, always rules kind right. of perspective. And it sounds like that's been your instinct. And I would say that that's probably more correct than not. So okay. I, from a holistic nutrition perspective, there's not any one macronutrient that can help cure some sort of a condition like this, right? There's, right. We can't just look at carbs. We can't just look at fats. We can't just look at proteins and make very high level uh, changes and tweaks. Now you are all very familiar with nutrition science. You already understand the importance of variety in the diet, including across proteins and across vegetables and things like that. So like I said, he's in excellent hands, but I would trust your instinct when it comes to mixing up the plate. I think that although some of, some of the, what is good advice, and maybe there should be an asterisk on the advice you were given by the, uh, the nurse there is to avoid fatty foods or excuse me, fats in foods that are not necessarily responsibly sourced. Okay. Right. So when we look at nutrient density of a food that shows up on our plate, we really want the most dense foods, especially, and I'm, I'm speaking especially to somebody who's looking to heal. Right. Right. We want, when we're looking at our plate of foods, we want the most dense foods to come from the best sources. So for example, that's why I will always spend a few extra pennies for that grass fed butter. Okay. Right. Then, yep. then for the regular butter, because the minerals and the vitamins and the fact that all of the hormones and antibiotics that could be present in the regular butter are not present in the grass-fed one. In addition to the bonus micronutrients there, it's worth it because it's a really dense food, right? Calorically, we're getting nine calories per gram in a fat than versus a protein or a carb. So 
it's really high. And I would say that that's a really good thing to prioritize. So when we're, when we think about, we've already tackled the carbohydrates, right? We've skipped pasta, we've skipped the bread. You've got a really good handle on what's showing up on a, on a plate for somebody who's recently been diagnosed with diabetes. I think that it's worth looking at the fats, but not in terms of let's just go ahead and go low fat, but in terms of let's make sure that the fat that's are showing up on the plate are from really good healing sources. So then that leads to one of my follow-up questions. So if I'm looking at the type of milk that he's drinking, would that lead towards choosing oh, you know, inappropriate quantities, mm-hmm. a, um, a whole milk from grass-fed cows and stuff versus 1% milk? So that this is my nutritional bias and you might get a different answer depending on who you talk to, but my bias is yes. Going with the most whole food available, including whole milk, that's personally what I give my husband, for example, um, is the cream top grass-fed milk, for example, right. whole milk. And, and he tolerates dairy really well. So it works, it works for my husband. Uh, so yes, I would, I would personally prioritize that. It's that you're going to spend more on proteins and fats that come from really, really good sources, but the benefits are twofold. We get, we're really mixing up the micronutrients, the vitamins and the minerals that are showing up uh, at mealtime. And we're also, which you spoke to before, which I think is important in terms of overall how you feel about the journey in general, but keeping food interesting, right? right? And being able to mix up the proteins uh, and the fats. So yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of benefit to it, but you might find some success there. Foods that come from other sources, let's say if it's a 1% milk, um, just, uh, gosh, what do they call it? A conventional cow, conventional dairy versus grass fed. There's a chance that that dairy could be more irritating to the body than something that's grass fed and whole just kind of like the concept of eating a whole egg, right? The egg in itself is a whole complete food. I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but um, (laughs) for for other listeners, it's helpful to hear over and over. It is. It it absolutely is. And it's helpful for me to talk about it over and over. It's almost therapeutic in a sense, but the egg in itself is a whole food, right? When we look at an egg, that's exactly how nature made it. We have the yolk, we have the whites, and the yolk and the whites have very different uh, nutrients makeups, right? In terms of fat, in terms of min- minerals. And when we eat just the whites or just the yolk, we're only getting part of the picture when in reality, the egg was meant to be eaten as in its entirety. They all work together in the body to be processed as a whole food. So you, fi- you find, and there's been some studies that folks who eat just egg whites turn out to have an, an intolerance eventually af- over time to eggs more quickly than folks who eat whole eggs. Wow. Because they're only getting a piece of the nutrition, right, to process it. And so it becomes more inflammatory in that way over time. The body essentially just is like, I can't, I can't handle these whites anymore, these egg whites (laughs) anymore. And I think that the same correlations can be, you know, understood when it comes to milk, for example. I think that the whole milk is a really good idea because we're getting the complete nutritional package. Yeah, uh, that's, that's good to hear. Um, and it is interesting because when you, when you talk to these nurses, you, you don't ever get to really, you know, and doctors too, you don't get to hear their full background, but you know that the focus of their training is usually not nutrition. Right. Yes. It's, it's, it's a different medical, 
you know, system that they're learning. And, um, but after our experiences with how much healing I've gone through, we can see how important it is. Yes, absolutely. I think, man, I just think your instincts are so dead on. And I've said it three times already, but he's very fortunate to have you um, in this, in this journey with him, because it's true. I think that when you, the things that you would think of Elaine as a very healing meal, when it comes to vegetables, um, really well thought out carbohydrate sources, right? Uh, yes. Low glycemic carbs. And then, and then a variety of proteins that come from a variety of different sources, right? Where beef, fish, pork, yeah, poultry, whatever you can get on the plate, oysters, whatever he will eat, all of our, <laughs> especially especially the organ meats, the offal uh, proteins are going to be really wonderful healing foods. You know, you think about it from that perspective. What are the healing foods I can get on the plate? And then that will really help. Now, not wanting to overload the body in any one macronutrient category is also very right. helpful. And, you know, and this, this goes along the lines of last night, for example, for dinner, we had a very unique dinner, but it's mostly because as a food blogger, you wind up cooking meals that don't actually make <laughs> up an actual meal. <laughs> and so, you know, for example, last night I had, we had these stuffed avocados. Avocados, right, are very high in really good, healthy fats. Yes. Um, but we had these stuffed avocados. I had roasted potatoes, the uh, sweet potatoes. And then for dessert, I had a slice of this key lime pie. In between the avocado, the butter I put on the potatoes, and the key lime pie, which had a good amount of coconut milk in it, was a lot of fats. Oh, right? yes. So if I were to look at a pie chart of that meal and the macronutrient that was represented the most would definitely be fats. And so in those instances, if I were really thinking about it, I probably would have just had steamed broccoli next to the avocado and skipped high fat dessert because I don't want to overload in any one instance. And the same can be said for somebody who's dealing with some sort of a chronic illness like diabetes, right? Yeah. And so, and I know you have a good handle on that, but so I would say that the nurse is partially correct. There's so much more to the story, right? What, right. What's more to the story and what matters most is food quality right? So prioritizing really, really healthy proteins, you're going to be better off. And then, and then making sure, yes, looking at fats, but it's not a matter of eliminating it altogether as it is just getting the whole plate in balance. Perfect. Well, this has been so helpful. Good, good. Did that answer two of your questions? It did. Um, you know, it, it helps me know that it's okay to, to keep putting a variety of the meats on his plate because you know, it really does keep it more interesting and him less likely to take his keys and <laughs> run to Whataburger. I'm thinking of my dad. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, because it is a hard transition for him. And, and I keep trying to tell him, you know, if he can get things kind of stabilized and, and in order, he'll, he'll see more room for, you know, you know, cheats later on. But, but right now he's got to kind of fix what's, what's going on. Um, and there is a lot to it. You know, I don't want the listeners to think that it all just has to do with what's on the food. It's, um, you know, he's got to exercise and there's whole lifestyle stuff that's got to go along with it. But, but this was just one part of the question that, you know, if I needed him to be doing something for his health, I want to do what's, what's best. And, mm -hmm. and it is hard to know with conflicting data out there sometimes to, to know if it's okay to go with your gut or not. 
It is, I know it is difficult. It really is challenging. And you're so right. There's so much more to the picture. And I'm really glad you brought that up. Obviously, you know that very, very well. Uh, you've been in, you've been following a lot of this material and doing your own research for many, many years. But yes, lifestyle does play a huge part. Rest, hydration, uh, activity levels, things like that. But I completely understand that if you are cooking the meals, that's an area where you really can have an impact. And right. to make sure that um, what's showing up is is the best of what it can be, or when it's within reason. There's no such thing as a perfect anything pursuit, but <laughs> it's, it's good to be aware. So I'm I'm more than happy to help as always, and I hope and I hope that was helpful. Yes, and he'll he'll be glad I asked the question. Good, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're like, honey, I got good news. We're not having fish or chicken tonight. <laughs> yeah, he does get to see it because because they're all good for you, but. Uh huh. Oh, that's great. Well, that's wonderful. Do you have any other questions, Elaine? So, um, no. So, I guess it, it goes back to you had talked about the the fats and using the good fats. So, in cooking the meats, you know, you can cook meats without using any fats at all. And then sometimes, if you're using a responsibly sourced type of fat, I'm assuming it would still be okay, you know, for, you know, like if you um, put some chicken thighs in a little bit of oil to kind of crisp up the skin as you're cooking them, um, that would still be okay as long as the oils are responsibly sourced. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. That's a really, I'm glad you brought that up. When I think about, let's say if I want to pan sear some chicken thighs and make them nice and crispy. Uh, I will use either avocado oil or I, I coconut oil, ghee, or even a really good olive oil. And having really good sources of fats means that, that the macronutrient represented is going to be high quality and it's going to be very nourishing at the end meal, right? Yep. Um, and if the proteins, I'm glad you brought that up also in terms of balancing out the plate. I tried to describe this with the avocado, but in hindsight, I don't know if I did a great job. Well, if you have a really high fat protein on your plate, and I'm sure Elaine already um, understands this concept, but if you have a high protein fat or high fat protein on your plate, like let's say chicken thighs, which on their own are more high fat, of course, than chicken breast. But let's say you've got chicken fry thighs that I think I'm hungry. My mouth's watering <laughs> and I'm mispronouncing things. If you have chicken thighs on your plate that you've crisped up, let's say in a little ghee, and they're really delicious, and you've got that on your plate, you probably have a higher fat content represented in that protein. So maybe on, if you're gonna serve that next to a salad, opt for a salad that's just dressed with fresh lemon juice. Okay. You know, and a little sea salt, right? So try to balance it versus a really heavy, oily uh, vinaigrette, you know? Gotcha. That's kind of how I think about balancing things out. Or, for example, if I am serving up grilled chicken breast that's just coated in barbecue sauce, which is very low in fat, you know, it's just essentially tomato sauce and spices. Right. Then I, and let's say I serve it with potato, I'll make sure I'll put at least a, a tablespoon, a generous amount of butter on that potato, right, to make sure that I'm getting a good balance, a good healthy serving across the board. So you can kind of normalize the fat content between, if you're looking at a plate of a starchy vegetable, a non-starchy vegetable, like a leafy green and a protein, you can kind of look and see where, where does the fat go on this plate. 
That's that's a good point. And that's a good lesson for me to, to pass along to my teens too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a good way to think about it. And that's something that I think I learned back in the days. I don't know if you ever came across the zone diet many years ago, but it was all about blocks. This is really before paleo. And that was one of the things I learned is back when I counted raspberries. So I don't recommend it to anybody. <laughs> oh, no. But I, you know, I, you can, you can walk away with a few good lessons from any experience and, and it's helpful to think about it that way. And that's how I try to think about my own, my own meals and how I stay on top of things without getting into counting macros, so to speak. Right. Yeah. It's life too short to count macros. It is. Amen, sister. <laughs> just kidding. If you're out there and you're doing it, more power to you. It's just not my jam. Um, <laughs> but that's wonderful. Well, Elaine, thank you so much. This has been a great talk. Thank you. I really appreciate the, the advice. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. Everybody listening, as always, you can find a complete transcript of today's show over at fedandfit.com along with links to our wonderful sponsors. Elaine, thanks again for coming on and everybody else will be back again next week.